Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey, this is Jordana Jarrett, editor at the Webby Awards. And Jason Brickhill, social media manager at the Webbies. We're so hyped because the nominees for the 23rd annual Webby Awards have been announced. Finally! Yes! Now it's time for you to vote in the Webby People's Voice Awards for your favorite nominees across all categories and media types, including websites, advertising media and PR, video, mobile apps and voice, social, podcasts, and games. You can vote for your favorite nominees from now until Thursday, April 18th to make sure the very best take home a Webby People's Voice Award. Make sure your voice is heard in deciding the best of the internet. Jordana, where do people vote? Vote Vote.webbyawards.com Vote.webbyawards.com Go vote. Now let's start the show. From the Webby Awards, I'm David Michelle Davies. This is the Webby Podcast. Selfies till I die. News needs all of us. Let's take a selfie. Smile. This here requires no filter. Hey there. Welcome back to the Webby Podcast. Here's a scenario for you. You're walking and you see something dramatic happen. You take out your phone, record a video, and upload it to the internet. It goes viral. All of a sudden, news outlets are using your video in their reporting. This happens every day, every minute even. But in 2006, it was almost unheard of. There was no Instagram, no hashtags or mentions, no easy way of getting CNN to see your content. That is, until my next guest, Lila King, and her former team created CNN's iReport. For all of you who don't know iReport, it was an online platform that allowed people to contribute photos and videos that would appear in CNN's coverage of stories. Telling citizen-led stories was a complete and necessary upheaval of the traditional reporting process. Today, Lila is helping a new generation of raconteurs tell better visual first stories in her role leading news and publishing partnerships at Instagram. We talked a lot about how vertical video has changed storytelling, Instagram's work to help creators utilize features like stories or live video, and of course, about the early days of iReport. Yeah, it's funny to think about it now. So iReport launched in 2006, and trying to explain that now and all of the very long, awkward, tense conversations about whether and how we could actually do this thing and were we going to sink the ship and should we call it something else? Should we take the brand name off? You know, all of that. Yeah. Like that stuff, that seems kind of crazy at yeah. this point, right? Because it's, <laughs> I mean, it, we just all take for granted that if you have a thing to express, there are a million different ways and places to express it and be heard immediately. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a guy named Roger Stone who's in a courtroom right now in front of a judge for his Instagram post. Right, which is a million miles more ubiquitous than when you guys started iReport. Will you tell people about what iReport was for people who don't even know? Yeah, so iReport was CNN's venture into citizen journalism. 
And at the time when we launched it, the way we pitched it internally and talked about it was that we were going to build YouTube for news. It launched in 2006. Actually, it launched like a couple months after Twitter. So it was this world where the idea of social media just didn't exist. Didn't exist. Yeah. That wasn't a thing that we all expected. But the big consumer shift and like technology shift at the moment was that everybody was buying phones that had cameras in them. Right. And that was this, you know, crazy transition. And so internally we were like, the next big breaking news event that happens, we may or may not be there or have a camera crew on the ground to capture it. But more than likely, someone will have a phone and we'll see it and we'll want to have a way to see that footage ourselves right. and include that on television. Um, it was, it's funny actually that it, before it launched, <laughs> the one of the one of the biggest visually driven breaking news stories in the couple of years before was this enormous tsunami in Asia. And that was one of those stories where, you know, CNN as a television news network really needed to have the visuals to help explain the scope of the story and, you know, what had actually happened. And the way CNN collected footage of that event was by putting these advertisements up on television saying, if you were there, if you saw it, if you captured it, mail it to us. And we had a P.O. box. And there was this big bin of, you know, years later, a big bin of VHS tapes and beta tapes that people had sent in as a result of that prompt. And, you know, it took like months and months to get all that stuff in and actually figure out, do we have the machinery to watch it, right. <laughs> you know, and how we can actually see it. Such a great example, too, because I remember when that happened, first of all, either there hadn't been a lot of tsunamis recently or people just didn't know or talk about or were aware of tsunamis like in the way that people are aware of weather today for whatever reason. I'm not really sure, but it was like sort of like exotic in a really sad way, obviously, in a tragic way. But there was something really like people couldn't believe that this thing had happened. And then as you're saying, there's, there was just no, there was no pictures or no video of it because a lot of it, a lot of the devastation, some of it was in touristy areas, but a lot of it was in remote parts of Southeast Asia where lots of people didn't even live, you know, or people lived and they didn't have technology or there wasn't news reporters and so forth. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But like today our expectation is you hear about a thing that happened and then you're immediately able to see it. You're yeah. like, you know, a quick search away from it. And Especially for a story like that, it's just so important to be able to see it, to really yeah. grasp the like the emotion of it, um, and you know what you would have felt as a person like actually witnessing that live. I think that's, I mean, that's ultimately that's the power of visual storytelling, right? And that's why like CNN is such a force, and television news persists. But I report, let us sort of expand that. Yeah. So um, you're sort of alluding to the fact that at the beginning, and I was sort of going to guess that this was the case because of, of just how things go but people were pretty precious about like what when you kind of came up when you guys all came up with the idea for iReport and launched it there was a lot of preciousness around the concept of like what would actually get onto the television set and like was it fact-checked and what was it sourced and did you have the copyrights for it? and all the sort of really important things that go into you know storytelling these days but you know in a in a much more like precious I guess way would be I guess back then than probably not that they aren't precious at CNN now but just given that there's you know nine zillion photos a second being published. Yeah. I mean, it's easy to understand that like you want to be sure as a news organization, you can stand behind what you're, you know, what you put your name on. I actually think that's one of the things that made such an impact on iReport and on my experience of it was that we were 
internally, we worked so hard to pitch this thing and get everybody comfortable and like everybody comfortable specifically with the fact checking and with, you know, the truth of, of what we were ultimately, you know, putting our names on. And so we implemented this really rigorous policy internally, which was that before that people could send in anything they wanted to, but before you would put it on television or on CNN.com, it would go through this really strict vetting process that would essentially amount to someone in the newsroom, a lot of times me, calling, like having a phone conversation with the person who had shot the video and posted it. And the the truth is the the material and storytelling that came out of those phone calls was really the richest, best stuff. Mm. I mean, the photography and video is great. Right. But when you can talk to a person who just saw something that they will remember forever, it was so important to them that they decided they needed to send it in. That's the best interview. I right. mean, it's like it's almost like doing the like, you know, actually being in the place and doing the, you know, knocking on doors and talking to people. Yeah. So it was like the what the, it was the story. I mean, as always, right? More than just the individual photo of the one twenty fourth of a second or whatever. Yeah. It yeah, it was. And it was, you know, it brought the people who were witnessing and living inside of stories to the front. Like there was instead of having, you know, the the uh, anchor with the microphone and the big camera and the like stuff in between you and the person who actually mm. experienced it, it sort of it took some of that away. And I think put more of the emotion out front. I, the first time I remember, like the first time that really struck me, this was oh my god, this was maybe like 2006 or 2007. I don't even remember anymore. It was. I don't know if you remember this. There was this huge um, bridge collapse in Minnesota. Sure, yeah. And, it, you know, it was this awful, awful right. thing. People, the... like, driving home during, like, rush hour and a bridge collapsed and these, you know, cars went over. And I someone sent in some video of it pretty immediately and with a phone number. And I called him up. And it was someone who was in his condo with a big picture window view of the bridge and just had happened to come home early from work that day and otherwise might have been driving across the bridge at exactly that moment and was just looking out the window and saw it and like thought, oh my God, I have to take a, you know, yeah. I, I have to capture this moment. But to talk to someone like who was having not just the experience of having seen it and captured it, but also the experience of like having potentially lived through it right it just it, it just it brought it so much closer what did other news organizations think at the time do you i mean did you have interactions with other organizations that like when you went to news conferences were people like excited or they thought it was terrible <laughs> to let regular people report the news or... um you know it was a mix uh i was just thinking back the the like one industry conference that i always go to and that i've always gone to is the online news association conference and i remember going to my first ona which was right after iReport had launched. And, you know, I was on some panel and we were having some discussion. And it was first, the conversation was about um, not iReport, but just comments. And was it okay to have comments on news stories? And like, could people participate? And was that okay? And, you know, there was a lot of, I think, healthy, reasonable debate and pushback over whether it was appropriate to invite people into the storytelling process who hadn't necessarily been trained to do it. Yeah. I mean, my view of it was then, still is now, that the news is, it's better. It's richer, it's deeper, it's more representative when you have more voices who are part of it. 
But I mean, you still, I mean, even then you were already starting to think about and struggle with, you know, the concept of like, what of, what of this stuff is real as you're just talking about. I mean, we were, we were just, were talking, I think it was a couple of days ago about like, what were the big internet moments or the ones that we thought were funny from last year, you know? And one of the ones that came up was, I don't know if you remember this, there's this guy named Jason Michael and he tweeted this photo this year during uh, the hurricane during Florence of the sh- a shark that was on the freeway underwater, right? And the idea was that like the water had gotten so high that there was sharks swimming around in during Florence, right? Great Photoshop, obviously. But it turns out that um, if you look at his Twitter feed, he actually tweeted the same photo like during Hurricane Harvey, like three years earlier, right? So this guy just like relentlessly posts the same photo over and over again. And it's like kind of funny, except for the fact that like there's lots and lots of people who thought that there were sharks swimming around during the hurricane, which is like a terrible terrible thing. I mean, that's just like the norm now, right? I mean, that's, there is a sea of Jason Michael, uh, shark photos that are out there. Um, and to some extent we've like moved to a place where it's like up to the public to really have like great eyes and start having their own skills at interpreting that and less, less for the team at CNN, I report to make sure that it never gets up there. Now, obviously, CNN is going to make sure that stuff never goes up on their network. I mean, you've certainly seen an influx of like more people with more ways to express themselves and more places to put things. I, I also think like to that to the shark example. I mean, one thing you saw in the wake of that was like immediately people jumped on and were like, "This is right. This yeah. is crazy." Yeah. Uh, Absolutely, this is not happening. I mean, there's like certainly at Instagram, like there's a lot of work happening to protect the integrity of what's happening on the platform. We're in a we're in a more complex moment, but I would say like that kind of participation has probably always been happening. Yeah. Tell me about. So you talked about Instagram for a second. Um, tell me about your your job at Instagram. What are you What are you doing there for people who don't know? Yeah. So my job at Instagram is to lead our partnerships work with news organizations and publishers. So essentially that means I sit kind of, I and a a small team sit in between the world of news and publishing and the Instagram product team. And on the one hand, we help publishers figure out what are best practices on Instagram and how do they find success there, depending on the way they measure it. On the other hand, we spend a lot of time with the news industry and publishers and listen to them and take their feedback and take that back to the product team and make sure it's reflected in our priorities. Right. Since you've been there, how long? Three years? Four years? It's going to be three years in April. Three years. In the three years you've been there, how have you seen news organizations adjust to, or I would say maybe, how have you seen news organizations improve in their use of Instagram to tell news stories and stories in general? Yeah, good question. I think, well, in some ways it starts with how Instagram has changed in the last three years. When I started, there was um, the old logo. You, there were no stories. You couldn't go live. There was certainly no IGTV. Um, it was a lot of, you know, still photos. Yeah. Um, so as Instagram has changed as a, as a platform, it's opened up a lot of new possibilities for news organizations and publishers to tell stories with video, with longer form video. I think stories as a format has really changed the game. There are 500 million people who use Instagram stories every day. It's a crazy number. News publishers who've jumped onto stories early, I think, are really seeing a lot of gains. The thing that's so different about stories and about Instagram storytelling in particular is that 
because it's stories is ephemeral, it goes away after 24 hours. That means it's it's a little bit more raw and kind of like unpolished. People aren't so not worried as about produced. what it's going to be thought of in five days when people go look at it. Or yeah, whatever. exactly. Yeah. So like in some ways it, it frees publishers up to be more experimental and mm. to try new things. I'm a big fan of publishers who are doing a lot with face-first storytelling on stories, like kind of adopting the model that you see a lot of teen creators doing. Uh-huh. Like thinking about um, like actually putting editors and reporters out in front of a story to explain it. And there's something about the ephemerality and sort of like immediacy of stories that makes that a little less scary than doing something on video right. might be if it were, you know. If, if it were something you were expecting to be on television right, or whatever. Right, right. Like you don't necessarily have to be like a professional face for the news to be telling, uh, to be sort of out front in a face first thing on Instagram stories. Not that you're not great at it, but like yeah, no, no. it doesn't have that sort of like baggage. <laughs> yeah. Or like level of expectation. Right. It's almost like you get to be yourself and and the real value of doing it is being yourself and being an expert and like having something to say. And so what do you think, I mean, we were talking about comments for a second. It seems to me, even though maybe we don't call them comments in a way, all the interaction around those stories are kind of like the new version of what comments are, right? And the stories on some level are like comments, some of them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, sometimes sometimes the comments, is where, that's where all the action is. I mean, I don't know if you follow The Shade Room on Instagram, but a lot of, a lot of what, I mean, that's a, a huge digital publisher. Uh-huh. And most of the time, a lot of the activity is less in what the shade room is posting and more in how people are responding to it. Right. Let's like, tell really me what the shade like, room is for people who don't know. The shade room is a digital publisher that mostly focuses on like celebrity culture, black culture. I was actually chatting with the founder of, of the shade room the other day and was so interested to hear her story that she thought she wanted to start a website because she had something to cover. She wanted to cover celebrity news, but she had no idea how to start a website because that's complicated. Right. But she definitely knew how to start an Instagram account, and so that's what she did. And so it's like essentially a magazine that happens on Instagram with an incredibly loyal and intense and super engaged uh, fan base. Do you think that the overall concept of like what we think of as news is broader now? Yeah, yeah, I think you work with a lot of organizations that are delivering essentially news, but probably people wouldn't have thought of as like news organizations. Yeah, I think that's I think it's a good point. A lot of digital publishers who really got started in like the beauty and lifestyle and fashion space, like Refinery29 is a good example, because they've really moved into, you know, covering lifestyle and fashion and beauty, but also politics right i mean i think that i think the real difference is these things have always existed and you know you've always been able to find follow or buy a like political news magazine or like a fashion news magazine but what you see on instagram is is a real like combination of things i think a lot of the publishers who are really succeeding are either going super deep in one subject or going super deep for one very particular kind of person When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. 
That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. It definitely seems, and maybe it's back to your what you're talking about around experimenting. It it seems like a lot of these publishers that sort of felt like they were more in this one lane. And I, I specifically have like Nat Geo and Refinery29 written down here that were like in this lane. On Instagram, they've like fat, they've like broadened what they do. And there seems like there's something about the experimentation that's like led them there. Maybe, I don't know. You know, I wonder if it might be because Instagram is obviously such a visual platform. And so the, to succeed on Instagram, you have to find focus and do one thing really well. And we're always, we always find a lot of the fastest growing publishers on Instagram are super consistent. Like mm. they have a thing, a format, a beat that they hit over and over again. But one part of consistency is just having a, a visual voice. So I, I think that that might actually be one of the secrets of Refinery29 success, and you should ask them. But they have really found a visual voice. It's so clear. If you if you were to look at an Instagram post from Refinery29 and, and block out the, the name, uh, you could probably – Interesting. If you followed them, you could probably say, oh, yeah, that's definitely Refinery. And that – that kind of opens up the possibility for going into new areas, new right. topics. Like once you've got your visual voice down, like you might as well apply it to all the things that your audience is interested in. Interesting. Because, I mean, that's that's such the – I would say like that's one of the criticisms or complaints of not Instagram in itself but of any social media platform, right, which is that it like – takes these brands that had these sort of like really storied histories and everybody knew what the New York Times looked like and knew what stories from this looked like and condenses it down to like the small little posts and that users somehow don't know what they're getting because they can't tell where it's from and all that. But in this case, what you're saying is that it's the ones, it's the brands that and the publications that have figured out how to actually have an identity, not just through the little teeny logo in the corner, but through what the content is. Yeah. And through the look and feel of it. Yeah. Um, Any others like that? Finding your yeah, I would. I would point to the Lily. It's a. It's a project from the Washington Post that's focused on news for millennial women. Mm. The style guide they have around their Instagram is absolutely brilliant. I mean, go look at their account. It's another one of. It's another one of those. You could probably look at anything from the Lily. Cover up the name and know exactly where it comes from. They set a tone with color and type that allows them to go in a thousand different mm. directions. Interesting. How do you think? This is shaping or changing the way, let's take millennials, experiencing the world in a different way because of the way they experience news on Instagram. I think one really big shift is that the visual nature of Instagram makes everything much more global. You don't necessarily have to communicate in words or don't have to have such a reliance on words, which means, you know, you can transcend the borders of language. Mm. Um, one of my favorite accounts on Instagram is uh, from a digital publisher in Italy called Frida. And I, I did actually take a couple semesters of Italian in college, but my Italian is not nearly good enough to understand what they're saying. 
But their visual approach, especially in video, especially on IGTV and in stories, is so focused on communicating the information without needing to understand the sound or the words you see on the screen that I'm able to understand it yeah. even though I have no idea <laughs> what is that what they're actually saying. And that's pretty I mean that's still relatively un- unique would you say or am I just like my feed is like old and I'm I'm following a <laughs> bunch of like tired tired accounts. <laughs> oh, no well I, we can help you with that. <laughs> We're not following a bunch of old tired accounts. Um I think it is something you see you see increasingly with accounts that are focused on really young audiences. Right. It, that, it's something we tend to advise publishers to do, to think about Instagram as a place to build the next generation of your audience. Um, the community on Instagram is super young, super engaged, and like very visually driven. Yeah. Uh, two, two accounts that I think that maybe you worked with on or maybe not, so you can tell me that I just I thought were kind of interesting and I'd read stories about – um, one is just generally National Geographic, probably one of the largest yeah, publishers actually, on Instagram. Nat Geo just crossed 100 million followers yeah. this week. And super interesting in that they have like this very, I mean, it's like the, it's almost like the iReport model of professional photographers, but it's, it's very against the grain of, you know, sort of a very curated thing, which is that they uh, have given over control of the account to like all, I mean, I don't know if it's all the Instagram photographers, but it's certainly more than 10 um, that all have their own have control and can like post whatever they want. I assume they have somebody else plan and timing yeah. and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, yeah, and super I think they have some though. like guidelines and standards. Yeah. Um, you know, I think one of the superpowers of Instagram is really influential people. No surprise. And Nat Geo and its network of photographers has really played to that strength. There are you know dozens of photographers who contribute to National Geographic in various ways, and also kind of self run the Instagram account with a really great photo director sure. who's working with them. Yeah. I think the power there is that you're able to connect to an individual and in their particular view of the world and you see it in the Instagram posts on Nat Geo's feed. They're all signed and tagged by the photographer yeah. who contributed to them and you can go back to that person's feed and you know see what else they're seeing. Nat Geo does a lot of Instagram stories too where they'll have a single photographer take you kind of on the journey for how he or she got the amazing photo that they ultimately posted to feed. And that's like, again, that it puts the face to a story mm-hmm. in, in a way that lets you kind of get inside. Yeah. Um, and then the other one I wanted to ask you about, well, let me ask you another about the Nacho thing. Do you think we will see other brands taking more of that approach? So opening up their accounts to lots of reporters or lots of photographers or lots of independent creators as opposed to I think you could tell me, but probably still now it's mostly managed centrally, I would imagine. Yeah. I mean, I think we're already starting to see that. CNN does a really good job with this. And it's kind of managed centrally. You know, there's got to be someone yeah. who's, <laughs> whose job is to focus on it. Um, but they have CNN has reporters in all kinds of fascinating places all around the world. And their reporters will do a takeover of their Instagram and show you, you know, mm-hmm. for example, the report they're doing from Pyongyang today or whatever it might be. I saw um, also the other thing I want to ask you about is I saw you guys did a like an initiative with BuzzFeed. Um, I think it was at the end of last year you announced it. Essentially, uh, you're going to help train a new generation of creators for Instagram Um People can submit their stories to be, I don't know if they've already submitted them, to be sort of considered. Tell me about that. Yeah. So it's called Vertical You. So the the premise is 
when we launched it, we were a few months past the launch of IGTV. IGTV is long form vertical video on Instagram. And do you work on IGTV as well? With, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's all falls yeah. under. Yeah. I mean, it, it's all Instagram. Yeah. Um, so the thing about vertical video and long form vertical video in particular is it's it's really new. And it's, I mean, for literally 100 years, we've gotten used to watching video in like one aspect ratio. And now yeah. all of a sudden we're <laughs> we've tipped it. It prompts all these new questions about how you do the standard things we've all been used to doing for centuries. Like, how do you do an interview that's vertical when you have, like, two people sitting across a table from one another like we are now? Like, what's that editing supposed to look like? And how do you frame that up the right way? Um, And then all the zillions of other use cases. So, So we knew experimentation would be really important to figure out what vertical should look like. Right. And since... Instagram is such a young platform, and since individual creators are such a superpower, we thought, how do we put all those things together and really, like, jumpstart some experiments? So together with BuzzFeed, we put out a call to action. We said, hey, you out there in the world, aspiring filmmakers, aspiring journalists, who's got a good idea for something that you think could make a really compelling vertical video series? And we got hundreds of pitches, and looked through every single one and chose our our 15 favorites and brought them all to BuzzFeed's LA headquarters for a week and did really intense kind of training and workshopping for all of these all of these projects. BuzzFeed has incredible digital video expertise. Do you think there's something that makes for better vertical video versus horizontal video or is it still at the end of the day a great story and it's just about the techniques that you use to showcase it vertically as opposed to horizontally or do you think that there's actually stories that are like better suited for vertical video yeah um i mean this is the ultimate question i think we're still uh, yes, okay. in I like I, I found the ultimate question I think, <laughs> good job <laughs> <laughs> um i think we're still figuring it out i don't know i my hunch is a good story is a good story is a good story whether it's vertical horizontal whatever but all of us spend the vast majority of our time on our phones in vertical mode mm-hmm. so our bet is we think we could we could invent something new a new behavior right and the the things we've seen so far really working are very personality driven, like really thematic, people who sort of hit on a model and do that over and over again. It's a lot of what we've seen come out of vertical use, some really um, very personality driven, topical uh, sort of thematic series. Uh, I mean, do you, th- do you think that the vertical versus horizontal is like more than just the format? Is there a... Is there something like generationally, like a spirit that's been, maybe it didn't start off that way, but that like, that there's something more bigger than the fact that it's just like, you can't turn your, can't turn your. (laughs) That it's just a different aspect ratio. I think so. I think that, I think part of the difference is in the closeness of it, Mm. that it's, I mean, imagine the way you watch stories on Instagram right now, or any of us, you're probably sitting with your phone no longer than an arm's length away from your eyes, which is a really different experience than the way you watch like other videos, certainly movie theaters or television. Mm. Like that distance is different. And that means you're naturally just sort of psychologically closer to what you're watching. To me, it partially explains why so much of what we've seen take off in the early days is personality driven, that you're like 
really close to a person. Hmm. You're like watching their face at an arm's length and right. kind of holding them in your hand. Do you, start, do you think we'll start to see the feeling of IGTV or of Instagram or some of these other, other social platforms on a bigger screen? Like, do you think that it's going to start influencing oh my gosh. You know, television shows? It has a little bit already, I think. Uh, I, I have no idea. I mean, we were in the office. We were watching the episode of Broad City that was that sort oh, yeah. of looks and feels yeah. like Instagram stories. Um, who knows? Right. It's it's such a fun time. I mean, all these things are kind of coming together, um, and we're experimenting with new ways to use them. But news organizations are trying to figure out how to act and live in a platform where people are used to seeing things that come from individuals that just look and feel a little bit different. And to me, I think it's about maintaining authority and expertise without looking all that different. Mm. I mean, like, that's the real trick to me. It's, it's, yeah. it's less about... Um, like, do you think that, like, Anderson Cooper should be trying to look like... No, I mean, yeah, I'm, being, I'm exaggerating, <laughs> but... You know what I mean? Like, do you have to be like really, really casual and so forth for it to come across as authentic? I mean, I, I don't know if really, really casual is what you have to do to come across as authentic. Really, really real, real. is what you have to yeah. do. Yeah. And like, and part of that, I feel like I keep using, <laughs> I keep using this term, but part of that is like eliminating the distance. Like it's literally in closer shots. Um, you know, someone who I think is really, really good at this is a woman named Jessica Yellen, who she's a former- she's great. Congressional correspondent for CNN. She's amazing on television. If you look at what she's doing on Instagram now, it is she's doing very immediate, close, expert news reports on breaking political news, what's happening every basically every day. But she's doing it in a format that looks like it it is native to and belongs on Instagram. She's literally in her Instagram story. She's like holding up her phone and explaining to camera you know, what the latest Senate vote on XYZ means and whether or not you should care about it. And it's, she's using, she's using all the tools and stories and text and animation and all that good stuff. But it, when you come across her stories, it, it looks like something that fits. It yeah. looks like something that makes sense in the context of the stories tray when you're seeing something from your cousin <laughs> and Beyonce and yeah. whatever else, right? Yeah. I mean, she's so interesting because, as you're saying, but like any of these like really great reporters are, who are out there working for these bigger publications doing a great job, they could just be doing what it's like. They could almost just be doing what she's doing, right? That you could you could see a future where there's lots and lots of Jessica Yellen's covering different topics in different places that are like their own. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then like the real magic happens when you kind of connect that into a bigger outlet like Nat Geo, which is essentially a network of dozens of people who are just like that. Yeah. Is there any other ones like that? These sort of like smaller, yeah. smaller groups of people who are, you know, doing newsy stuff, but outside of traditional. Yeah, I would, um, a couple I would point to, there's a, a student journalist uh, in Ithaca named Malik Mercier. Um, he is, he's often covering partially his own life and also his own community in Ithaca. Um, I think, I think he's really good one to watch. He does, he's, um, he was a broadcast journalism student and has, and has moved out of broadcast, um, but he's kind of, he's taking the things he's learned in broadcast and applying them to a new place. 
I also really like Emma Odesser. She's a young journalist who started, she started a zine on Instagram that was like fashion and beauty when she was in high school. Hmm. Um, she's taking a gap year and she did this really great project for Vice about, she's 18 and it was called 18 with Issues. And it was an interview series where she was interviewing other 18 year olds about the issues that mattered to them heading into the midterm elections. Um, she's great on Instagram. Another good follow. Interesting. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. There's some good accounts to follow. Increasingly, we're doing a lot of work at Instagram on the news team with student journalists and with sort of emerging stars. I think there's there's something interesting to be said for a a group of people for whom Instagram is basically their native language. They just like they get it. They're way better at it than I am. And they're in journalism school learning the nuts and bolts of how to find a story, how to tell it right. Yeah. And like putting those two things together is is going to be really, really fascinating over the next couple of years. Yeah, and they're not like already hardwired into like all these other ways that are old and no longer the best ways necessarily of like how to do that, right? Like they're learning like the essence of storytelling, but not necessarily like, you know, and then you block the frame this way. They're open to what are the new ways to do that? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about the – election for a second, the presidential election coming up. Yep. You have all these candidates like doing these videos now. It's like their announcement speeches. There's so many candidates, all of, you know, some of them using it. It's really, it's like fun to watch some of them be good at it and some of them not be as good at it, but like they all, you know. <laughs> Do you have uh, opinions? On no, no. Like... It's just, I just think it's, it's, kind of, it's really interesting because everybody knows they should be doing it and they're all trying to do it. And it's just sort of like you were saying, like some people are naturally just going to be sort of better at that than others, right? Some people are going to be great at delivering a speech like in front of a teleprompter and huge cameras and some people are not and some people are going to be great at like talking to their phone. And it's kind of fun to see these people that normally are like, you know, have so much entrapments of, you know, formality and how important they are all around them trying to do this in various, you know, with various success. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I will say as a, you know, as a citizen and a voter, it it is um it's it's been really interesting to watch the kind of behind the scenes version of the US yeah. Congress um in a new way. Um I think for news organizations 2020 is going to be a challenge in learning how to use Instagram as as a, a place to do news gathering and to like find the story. The story who knows, may actually unfold there in a way that it may not have before. Um, and that will, that'll require some new skills. Yeah. I mean, there's some, I mean, there's some people would say that like AOC's, you know, Instagram skills are better than many of the news outlets that are out there. Not that you would say that, but you know, but there's, there's definitely like a huge differentiation in, in the skill set, you know, both directions. I mean, it's like this, uh, every technology suggests maybe a new class of, you know, people in all fields, like politicians for sure, but also journalists and, and everything else. I and mean, it demands Instagram. I said this before, Instagram superpower is really is influential people and people who are really good at Instagram are really good at making, like making a connection and being themselves on camera and in public. And that's hard. That's, a, <laughs> yeah, that's not easy. Lila King, thank you so much for joining us on the Webby Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much to Lila for stopping by the studio and chatting with us. If you want to know more about her work, visit Instagram-Press.com. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you took a few seconds to leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It helps others like you find the show. 
And don't forget, it's Webby nominee season. To see all the nominees, visit us at webbyawards.com, W-E-B-B-Y awards.com, or on social platforms at the Webby Awards. As always, you can reach me on social at DMD Likes. Our producer is Terrence Brosnan. Our writer is Jordana Jarrett. Our editorial director is Nicole Ferraro. Music is Poddington Bear. Claire Graves is a fruit bowl made from recycled ocean plastic. I'm your host, David Michelle Davies, and this is The Webby Podcast. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.